Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we mark 20 years since the great Northeast blackout cut power to some 50 million people, including across a huge chunk of Ontario and eight U.S. states, including New York City. Uh, We look back on that day and ask what lessons were learned then and are we better prepared for it today? In this summer of extreme weather, from massive wildfires and smoke pollution to flooding, heat waves and drought, in an article called Canada in the Year 2060, science journalist Anna Shabata Castleman takes a close look at what changing climate could mean for Canada and Canadians in the decades ahead and how we need to prepare for more of what we've witnessed this summer. But first, we hear a terrifying and harrowing tale of escape as an Ontario doctor recounts how she and her police officer husband found themselves trying to flee the fast-moving and devastating wildfire that destroyed the Maui town of Lahaina last week and hear about the moments they didn't think they were going to make it out alive and how ultimately they did. It was really hard not to pay attention to the devastation in Maui. And part of it is because back in August of 2017, so just six years ago now, uh, we went to Hawaii for the first time and spent some time on Big Island and in Maui. And one of the trips we took then, and there's many good photos of it, beautiful photos of it, it was a great little spot, was a day trip to the beautiful and deeply historical spot called Lahaina, the capital of the kingdom of Hawaii from 1820 to 1845, no less, a place steeped in Hawaiian culture and tradition. So really it was with a lot of heartache that we watched the footage of that ferocious windstorm and fire that swept through the area last week, knowing that it was old with lots of wooden structures and that not there weren't, really weren't many ways to get out in an emergency like that one, really fearing the worst. And then just the scale of the devastation was hard to comprehend, even if you'd been there. Uh, well, as days have gone by, the scale of that tragedy is becoming ever more clear. Today, the death, co- death toll climbed to 99, with expectations that more bodies will be found, sadly, making it the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than a century. Uh, there's been relief efforts going on. Obviously, today, the Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator, Diane Criswell, said the focus is on finding those who remain unaccounted for, but it's tough going, and the damage on Maui, including from other wildfires, is staggering. Nothing can prepare you for what I saw during my time here, and nothing can prepare them for the emotional toll of the impact that this severe event has taken on them. Well, those who witnessed it firsthand continue to share what it was like to be there when the fire, fueled by those very high winds and a parched landscape, hit their community. Here is Lahaina resident Keeler Malmstrom. So we go out and we can see that the entire hill is on fire. You know, you can see it from our house. Like, just the whole city is built, you know, on a hill. So it's behind us. And we could see the smoke. And all of a sudden, oh, my gosh. It just the, the quickness with which it happened was the craziest part. It was just so fast. Well, despite the tragic loss of life and the widespread destruction, we continue to hear more incredible tales of survival, including from Canadian tourists who were there. One couple found themselves in the path of destruction last week, Dr. Jesse Watkins and her husband, Chris, who is an OPP officer from Kingston, on a video they posted of their attempts to get out of the area as the wind and the flames came raging towards them. The smoke was so thick you couldn't see in front of your face, and they're trying to drive out of this. Huge embers are falling on their vehicle. And one of the things that's most striking about their video is the complete silence 
in their car. They count themselves among those who feared they would not make it out alive um, after they fled their Airbnb near Lahaina that morning, trying to make it to safer ground. Well, they are back home tonight, and that's where we find Dr. Jesse Watkins. Uh, Dr. Watkins, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. How are you? I mean, I, I you know, I've, I've been in, in the past to disaster zones, and it's kind of the week after that things start to set in a little bit, you sort of start to think. And how are you, how are you and your husband holding up? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. In a moment, you're in survival mode, and your adrenaline is so high. Um, we got home, we, it took us 24 hours to get home total once we landed. And when we were at our house, Friday night, we were almost still had that kind of adrenaline rush going. And I don't think it was until Saturday when we were just in a quiet house that you start to go over what you live through. And uh, it's, we're managing it. There's, you know, sometimes a flashback will hit or, uh, you know, you think you're doing okay and then you're not. Um, so it's a lot of ups and downs. Take each day as it comes. Yeah. Take me back a bit to where, because like so many people who've been to Maui or have been to Hawaii, you were just there on holiday, right? Taking the drive that many, many people have taken over the years. Uh, how did how did it unfold? Things kind of started long before the fire. Um, our, just after 5 a.m. on the Tuesday morning, we lost power at our, we were at an Airbnb just on the border of Lahaina and Kanapali. And it was kind of one of those situations where you know, you kind of expect, oh, maybe this will go on for a few hours. And then the wind just kept getting stronger and stronger. The lounge chairs at the pool were flying into the pool. We thought, okay, well, we don't, we don't, we didn't have a lot of food in our fridge. Uh, and we thought, we'll try to go find some food in Kihei. And we got in the car and my husband, who's a police officer, is a you know, a lot of knowledge about disaster response and that kind of thing. And as soon as we got in the car and started driving down the road, every single power line was down. Every single one oh, wow. was was collapsed. And there were wires all over the roads. And it was very clear this wasn't going to be a quick turnaround. And as soon as we saw that, we turned around, went back to the Airbnb, packed up very, very, very quickly, left anything that wasn't necessary because there was just an inkling that this is going to get worse really fast. Right. And then as we were driving back in towards Lahaina, I said, is that dust in the air or is that smoke? And Chris said, I, I think that's smoke. And that's when things changed. Every road we tried to go down was blocked because of the power lines. So every escape route I had in my head from being there before blocked so we couldn't get out. Yeah, and you mentioned you've been there before, but again, you're still not you're not in unfamiliar territory, right? You're trying to do yeah. your best within an area that you don't really know that well, and things are happening really fast. And so many of us rely on Google Maps and our and our our cell phones for everything, and nothing was was working, right? So you couldn't you couldn't look anything up from from there was no information to to be had. You basically just had to think we're here. If we need to get there, just keep trying each road. And I, I suppose, you know, with, with your husband being a police officer, he would have recognized, I, I mean, what was it like? Was there any information being passed around or were you really in the dark at this point? Literally and figuratively with the smoke, there was no information at all. I understand there was an emergency alert sent out, but again, we didn't have any cell service or internet, so we right. never received anything. And the first responders were working as hard as they could, but uh, there's only a handful of them. And so there wasn't, there wasn't any direction really at all as to 
had this route. It was just us trying over and over again to find a way out completely blind. And, and the flames, I mean, when, when when one looks at hard, anyone, I've been to, to, to Lahaina, it's, it's hard to fathom the destruction afterwards. But at this point, I gather between the wind and the flames, this is moving at incredible pace. And you're right in its path. Yes, it was moving so fast that when the roads are blocked, we pulled over to, I changed it to my running shoes thinking we could flee on foot, but it was moving so fast. I I didn't think we'd be able to run it. And we were in sort of parked by like a, a large, a large sort of grass field area. And there, it was very uneven terrain with Boulder. Like, I don't know that we would have really been able to traverse it. So at this point, I realized at some point there's, 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 ash falling you can't see the smoke's really thick it's getting hot too right yeah the, the heat from the fire was quite intense yeah, tell me about so, so you, you you get back in the car at, at some point you, you must wonder how you're going to get out yeah it was definitely on our minds that we likely wouldn't really yeah you, you made a phone call i, I think or, or tried to at least mm-hmm. Yes, we at one point we were trapped on Front Street, which saw a brunt the brunt of the damage. And uh, I was able to get a cell phone enough data to text my parents and my sisters. And I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something along the lines of, "This is really bad. I love you guys." Wow. And then we lost service. And then from a different vantage point, we were able to call Carter at home in Kingston. Your son, yeah. And just sort of said, "We love you. We're proud of you. We're in a lot of trouble." And 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 your husband's someone who's trained in this stuff too. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're in many ways more prepared than most, even in that awful a situation. We were just so lucky, and so much of what Chris did, he got us above the highway, so we could see where which direction the fire was going. So we at least knew which way to try to flee. And we were both trained in emergencies. A lot of our emergencies are algorithm, right? If this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. Right. And there just wasn't an algorithm for this one. No. What happens? Because at one point, it looks like you're not going to be able to move. And, and, you know, the worst may happen. And at some point, the sort of there is a glimmer that you're going to be able to get out. What happens? From the point we were just back from the highway, just above it, I could, we had a vantage point that I could see there were cars on Highway 30 that were just starting to move. And I can't say for sure because I couldn't see the barricade, but I suspect that's probably when they realized we just have to push this off to the side and go through. So they finally started moving. And I said to Chris, we need to get in that line. We need to get in line to try to get on that highway. It's the only road out. There are two roads, really. If you, I mean, the bypass was above us, but there was no way to access it. So mm-hmm. there's one road in and one road out, basically. We, we already tried to go the other way. And so we're inching towards this intersection we need to make a left-hand turn and we're crawling at this point a stop sign hurls through the air and slams into our car that's how that's how strong the winds were and we find we see a police officer who is directing traffic at the intersection which is allowing people intermittently to join the line of cars and he stopped and we were thinking what why why does he stop we're so close we're almost there and we then saw that a firefighting vehicle had pulled into the intersection 
and unloaded one of their firemen. So then, of course, the efforts were diverted to CPR and resuscitation for him. So we were literally in the intersection about to join the line of cars. And I said to Chris, I have to get out. We have to, I have to help. So we, we, we still certainly got in line eventually, but that's how things kind of slowed because um, we had to make, there had to be room for the ambulance to get in. You got out and helped, mm-hmm. right? I offered to help. There were at least four firemen doing CPR. Um, I just said, you know, I do you need any help with the airway mm-hmm. as an anesthesiologist. And the look of anguish on his partner's faces was something I'll never forget. Yeah. Were you, were you and Chris talking at this point? Are you talking to each other? I mean, I, I, I know that you're both trained for emergencies, right? It was people aren't you, 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 unlike many know how to kind of manage something like that. Are you talking to each other at this point? Are you, are you communicating? Are you trying to figure out what to do? Or are you just pretty much in sort of survival mode at that point? I mean, in retrospect, our our voices would have sounded remarkably calm. I think you kind of almost go into this state where you you know that panic isn't going to serve you. So we were very calmly saying things like, Honey, if we don't get this way out, we're not getting out. So, are we ready to run? Um, you know, it was our language. I think portrayed the severity of the situation without becoming hysterical. Basically, we were calm in the sense that we were trying to come up with a rational plan as to what to do next. And then you do manage to very slowly, very very slowly, mm-hmm. make your way back um, to where you're trying to get to Kihei, which I get, if I remember is about a half an hour. Usually not that long a drive, Normally. but yeah, yeah. In this case, I, at, at this time, are you seeing what's happening as you're leaving? You must be seeing what's happening behind you too. You know, to be fair, I didn't look behind us. We were so focused on trying to get out, and it felt really positive at first because we started to pick up speed, and we thought we're going to be in the clear and then traffic came to a dead stop. And um, we sat like on Google maps, we did have a signal now and it was, it would sit at, you know, 18 miles and we sit for 30 minutes and it it wouldn't go down. And then you could, you you knew the fire was coming towards you and there was no possibility of turning around now because there's someone behind us. So it literally time seemed like it stopped. Slowly but surely. So we started itch. crawling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took us five hours to get to Kihei. And people may not realize there were other fires burning at the same time. So it was about 7.30 maybe when we turned right to go towards Kihei. And I can't articulate what it felt like to see another fire right there. There was another fire there. There was another fire in North Kihei. Yeah. So if you're thin- it was basically yeah. could have across from Sugar Beach. Uh, there was another one, very visible from the from the road. You, you do manage to make it to Kihei. Um, mm-hmm. What what ha- what happened then? Every single I I knew that everybody would be either trying to head to the airport or find a hotel, and um, so anytime we got a single bar of any kind of uh, service, I was on my phone trying to find us a hotel, and I I found us one in Wailea, we're just uh-huh. on the border of Wailea and Kihei. We got to the hotel in, in Wailea and we knew that there were so many people stranded probably at the airport who didn't have a safe place to stay. At this point, we were about 
I think four miles from the closest fire. And we decided to stay there. The wind was so powerful that night. There were, there were no, like there was no way a plane would be taking off in that wind. So we decided to stay over. You must have, at some point when you get back to Kihei that night, obviously you start making the phone calls, right? The phone calls back to Canada to let everyone know you're okay. Yes. I, because we've been, we hadn't been able to contact people our family members in that period of time for such a long time period. I remember texting my family, my, my parents and my sisters. And I, I said, today was a very tough day and it's going to take us a really long time to process this. And I, I left out a lot of details, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't want to concern them, but I just kind of wanted to give them a heads up. We're safe, but this is far from over for anyone who was involved. Right. You do manage to fly home, I gather, on Friday, uh, a few days later. We, so you spent a few days there, yes. right? So we, so actually what happened was we were feeling safe enough to shelter where we were on Wednesday afternoon. So this would have been about 24 hours after we had fled Lahaina. We went out to get some food because we didn't take anything with us. And we... Uh, came across a pub, we sat down and instantly the owner said, sorry guys, we're only going to serve for 45 minutes and I have to send my staff home. Right. And we kept hearing hearing this from other establishments all around. And I said, you know, sorry to bother you, but is there something going on? Because we had been caught before <laughs> with no warning. And he said, yeah, the, the fires nearby just got worse. And so I'm sending all my staff home to evacuate. So instantly we went on our phones and started trying to book flights home, but we couldn't get a flight out that night. Um, the soonest one we could get out. Most of the flights from Maui to Vancouver fly in uh, Red Eyes. So the first one we got out was a Air Canada rescue flight the Thursday night. Thursday. So we we flew the Red Eye Thursday, landed in at YVR, then flew to Calgary, then flew to Toronto, then drove to Kingston. What was it like to to land back home? I mean, it, it's you, you you talked about it earlier. That it doesn't you don't really process any of it until later. But what was it like to step off that plane and back back into yeah. back into Canada? Immense relief. I just was crying tears of joy. I was so relieved. I think we we take for granted our um, our resources here, our infrastructure our emergency response and it just felt so good to not be what felt like trapped on an island wow and there's and you must have seen there's so many stories like yours of people who've had very very close calls and of course you know the thoughts with all those who didn't right i mean there were this has turned into something that was even more devastating than i think people imagined when it was happening when having witnessed how fast the fire was moving when the first numbers came out, Chris and I both said it's going to be catastrophically worse than anyone's expecting. I remember we were, when we were stuck on Front Street, there were people sheltering because the winds were so bad and the smoke was so uh, irritating. There were people hiding in the stores on Front Street. That main street in Lahaina, right? 
I know it's early to look back at all this, but but it it must be it, it, even for someone who's who who understands trauma, who's dealt with trauma. Your husband, you and your husband both have over the mm-hmm. years. This this sounds like something that's almost impossible to describe. You know, it's it's I was there, and I still find it surreal for me to process, and it's almost impossible to art, to really articulate the speed of the fire, the feeling of being trapped and the realization that this could be, could be it. It's such a, I mean, you'd been there before I know, and I, I'd been there years ago. I mean, it's such a beautiful part of the world. The people are very, very, you know, it's, it's a great spot. Mm-hmm. It's sort of paradise in its own way. Um, mm-hmm. What would you like people to know now? I mean, I don't, don't imagine, I, I guess, I guess we'll have to figure out when we can go back, if it's safe, you know, if it's how to mm-hmm. help, right. How to help. You know, I, I think that um, the, this is Lahaina, it, it, if people are not familiar, is a very sacred place for Hawaiians. Uh, mm-hmm. Historical, spiritual, and cultural significance is, um, you know, you, you can't underestimate it. So not only is there the loss of life, but there's the impact to the whole way of life on Maui. And I... I can't even imagine what the people of Maui will be facing in the next years to rebuild and to to grieve. But in terms of the best way to help, I, I don't know the exact answer in terms of which agencies, but I believe that monetary donations are currently still the the uh, most useful. Right. Have you been following it or did you just try, try to sort of go back to work. I know you've gone back to work, but just to, I don't know what you're, what Chris yeah. did, but but just sort of turn your head away and, and try to move on a little bit because you can. We, we yeah, we're lucky. We're grateful enough and lucky enough that we can. Um, we followed it pretty closely um, up until yesterday, and then we both decided that we need to take a step back from the news, uh, from reading any more stories about it. In order to reduce the reliving it well dr watkins um i I think everyone who's everyone who had close guy it's just remarkable we're you know it's it's a remarkable story to to hear and and i really appreciate you sharing it thank you for having me In the last uh, 45 minutes, we heard an incredible story of survival from the wildfires that swept across parts of Maui last week and devastated the town of Lahaina from a Kingston-based doctor. Uh, She and her husband were right near that town when the fire just roared into that community, uh, you know, fanned by very high winds. You've probably seen pictures of the devastation. Um, We've already been talking about over the past few days, just what a long road to recovery it's going to be for many parts of Maui, but specifically the town of Lahaina, which was just about destroyed altogether. Uh, even now, some residents there are being told it remains too early to return to some parts of the island where firefighters have put out wildfires just because it's not safe at this point. Um, Lahaina resident Lisa Peroni, though, says she's amazed at the sense of community as people work to support each other. There is a spirit here that I've never experienced anywhere else in the world. And I've lived in a lot of different places and I feel like that is growing and it's becoming stronger. 
but the needs you'll understand are huge. Uh, there had already been, I mean, there are concerns about chronic housing shortages in that area to begin with. And now some 4,500 people have been displaced. They're in need of shelter, long-term shelter, not short-term shelter, just. Um, they're in need of food and water. Maui water officials have warned uh, Lahaina residents not to drink running water, which may still be contaminated even after boiling. Um, and aid groups, luckily, aid and aid groups have been responding to the this disaster since late, late last week. There have been complaints about the slow pace of it. I mean, it's hard to get there. It's hard to move a, to mobilize a lot of stuff into the area quickly. But one of the groups on the ground now is called Mercy Chefs. They're a Virginia-based disaster relief and humanitarian aid organization. They serve chef-prepared meals in national emergencies and national disasters. Uh, they were created in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina after it hit uh, New Orleans and the founder realized that there was a real need for this kind of service. People don't often think that food is really important here. They're now in Maui and Carl Ladd, Vice President of Mercy Chefs Global, joins me now. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Tell me a bit about the situation there now. We've been watching it from afar, of course. Um, always hard to tell exactly what's happening on the ground, but what is the situation uh, where you are right now? Yeah, so I'm in Kahului on the north side of the island of Maui. Um, we got a kitchen here serving displaced um, people that had to flee from the fire. And then we also have a kitchen on the, the west side, just north of Lahaina, uh, serving people that are sheltering in place uh, on that side. So uh, situation on the island, uh, it's pretty chaotic. Uh, you know, it's um, I think we're five days after the initial event. And so some pieces are starting to fall in and, um, but there's still a lot of moving pieces and a lot to come together. Um, but, uh, you know, as people just kind of reel with the reality of, of what's taking place and uh, rally together. Like these, this community has been truly amazing. Just everybody throwing in and helping with whatever they can. Um, so it's been a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah. Just as a Hawaiian yourself, when you, when you look at, at the, at the, at the immediate, um, the immediate needs, but also the long-term needs as well. I mean, there's going to be, this yep. is not a short-term one, right? I mean, one can, when, when, when you look at what's happened, I mean, this is going to take a long time for that part yeah, of the island a, to rebuild. Yeah. There's a long road to recovery. Uh, there's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and at Mercy Chefs, we're, um, our, our desire and really our passion is to, to be able to help as long as that need is persistent. Um, and that's why we, we value so thankful for our local partners and local churches that we're able to come alongside with um, that will be serving for the, the length of this recovery, you know, right. for, for the multi-year process that this is going to be. How, how does it work for you? Because obviously you face the same challenge. You mentioned a, a bit earlier about, about some of the supplies you've been getting, but you face the same challenges that everyone else faces, which is there's not a lot of, there's just not a lot of stuff to be had. And it's very difficult. I, I can imagine it's difficult to cook. It's difficult to do the, all the basic stuff, given the scale of the damage. Yeah, it is. I mean, those are those are challenges that we navigate uh, every every deployment, every disaster zone that we go to. Obviously, Hawaii has uh, uh, an increased level of those challenges just because of its isolation uh, due to the Pacific. But um, we're able to find ways. You know, there, there's always where there's a will, there's always a way, and uh, through partnership, especially, um, and just people uh, throwing in and and miracles happening and, and things. Things coming that we don't expect. You know, we we actually had a shortage of protein the other day. We're like, all right, what are we gonna do? We're you know we're out of chicken, 
uh, and a local fisherman came and said, Hey, I got 300 pounds of swordfish. Wow. Um, can you guys use it? And so we're able to put out fresh, awesome swordfish meals to, to these people. And so, um, yeah, you know, I think it's just about putting yourself in those situations and willing to find those, 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 uh, solutions and our chefs, I can't, can't brag enough about our chefs that are able to make things happen, whether it's cooking over an open fire or cooking in a beautiful commercial kitchen. Uh, they put out thousands of meals a day, um, and they're, they're, they're excellent. Um, it's truly delicious food. Um, and we couldn't do it without our, our local, local partners. We, I can't tell you, we've got about eight chefs. Um, that we're all had restaurants here, worked in the hotel industry, um, and their their jobs are kind of on hold right now. But they show up every morning, and they're here with us all day, doing dishes with us at the end of the day. Um, it's just truly remarkable the local response um, and our people that are on the ground making it happen uh, and overcoming these incredible obstacles to, to serve people with quality. Right. What What about the, what about the people you've been talking? I mean, obviously, you've been talking to to people who've been uh, impacted by this. How are I mean, yeah. five days sometimes. You know, you have the original the initial rush of of sort of the disaster, fleeing it, getting out of harm's way. But the hard yeah. part is the hard part is now, right? The hard part is when you got to sit in and sort of start to figure out what you're going to do next. How are they holding up? Yeah, um, you know, people are incredibly resilient here. Uh, but absolutely, like you're saying, reality's starting to hit in. Just yesterday, I was meeting with uh, a woman. Um, she's been doing a lot of our feeding and, and helping us prepare meals on uh, just north of Lahaina. And her and her husband and many of their, their family members have been serving about, running about 16-hour days, helping us put out meals, serving their community. Um, and they didn't know if their house made it or not. They had to evacuate, um, you know, on foot. They couldn't even make it out with their vehicles. They had to literally escape on foot um, because these flames were moving so fast. Um, and after three days of just serving all day, every day, uh, they still didn't know what had happened to their home. Wow. Um, but they finally got a break and were able to go. And they did find out that, that everything they owned was burned. Well, everything was lost. Um, and yet they're still there today serving. They're still there pouring out and serving the people that are in their community. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one story of a thousand. Uh, everybody, it's, it's a small island. It's a tight-knit community. So, honestly, it's really hard to find somebody that wasn't directly affected by this event, either either losing their, their home or, or a family member losing a home. Um, and uh, despite, despite so much loss and so much uh, tragedy, it's, it's incredible people's resiliency and hope and desire to still serve their neighbors and to lend a helping hand. Um, and that's a huge part of the, you know, the healing process. And, um, you know, I, I was had a short conversation with another volunteer um, who came yesterday. She was on the line serving, serving meals to, to people in a, uh, one of the shelters that we're feeding out here on the North side of the Island. I said, Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much for volunteering. And she just started getting tearing up. She just said, it's so good to feel like I have something to give. I lost everything, but I'm able to, I finally have something that I can do and give to somebody else. And she was just scooping, you know, food and serving um, delicious teriyaki chicken. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling because every single person you talk to has, has one of these stories that just challenges you and uh, encourages you that, you know, it's, it's a long road ahead but these people are incredible. And, and I know that, um, you know, there's better days ahead. Pearl, uh, 
Congratulations to your, you and your team on the work that you do. Thank you so much for your time tonight and our best, of course, to all the, all the folks where you are. Thank you. I appreciate your support and uh, getting the word out there. Thank you. There you had it. 20 years ago tonight, uh, a lot of the eastern seaboard and parts of the Midwest, Cleveland and so on, including and Toronto as well and Ottawa and other parts of Ontario were plunged. They were in darkness tonight after what was the biggest power failure in North American history, 50 million people across Ontario and parts of the U.S. Uh, power went out at 4.09 p.m. Eastern time, as Brian Williams was hosting the NBC Nightly News that night, uh, mentioned, again, the worst electrical failure in North America's history. It all began when a tree branch touched a power line in Ohio, believe it or not, and then cascaded through eight U.S. states and into Ontario. I happened to be in New York City that day on vacation. It happened on a Thursday. And I arrived that afternoon for a long weekend, a trip. I was on holiday. It was August, of course. Uh, at first, when the power went out, people in New York specifically didn't know what to make of it because it was less than two years after the 9-11 attacks, right? So there was a lot of fear and trepidation on the street, a lot of uncertainty. Don't forget cell phones. It wasn't like today. Cell phones weren't working particularly well, if at all. People didn't have a lot of information. All they knew it was, was the power was out absolutely everywhere. Uh, soon we would learn it was out a lot further than – in a lot bigger space than New York City alone. All I remember was the heat. It was hot. It was August. The the sea of people, I was in Brooklyn at the time, the sea of people leaving Manhattan, trying to get home uh, with traffic all but at a standstill. The city's subway system was at a commission. Again, cell phone service was spotty, uh, but not spotty enough that I wasn't able to get in touch with the newsroom that I was working for at the time in Montreal and managed, of course, to go out and report. We soon understood that millions of people over a huge chunk of the eastern seaboard and other states right up into Canada were out of power. I remember New York, the big deal was looting, right? Because that had happened in previous blackouts. There had been looting in the city. So there was a curfew, if I remember correctly, in place. But what I remember most was that people just, it was hot, right? So and there was no air conditioning. So everyone just sat outside through the evening chatting with each other. Neighbors who barely knew each other. This is in New York, of course. Neighbors who barely knew each other finally got to talk that night. I was staying with a friend of mine and his wife. We sort of just sat out back and chatted. And, you know, the light, lights eventually came back on. It didn't take that long. But what a wake-up call it was because the fact that that little event in Ohio could cascade into this incredible power outage. Again, if you look at where it was affected, right? Toronto, Ottawa, Kingston, Sudbury, Kitchener, London, Windsor, Cleveland, Toledo, New York City, Buffalo, Albany, Long Island, Westchester County, Rockland County, Detroit, New Jersey, Vermont, Connecticut, all of it. All of it without power. 10 million in Canada, 40 million in the US. Again, it's a day that is absolutely etched in my memory, not just because I had to, because I went to work and then came back late in the evening, uh, walked. I mean, I, I, I didn't have a step counter at the time, but I must have walked 50,000 steps that day trying to get this story done. Um, the Independent Electricity System Operator is a crown corporation in Ontario responsible for operating the electricity market and directing the operation of the bulk electrical system. So you can imagine they were absolutely on the front lines that day. And David Robitaille is now Senior Director of Market Operations with the IESO, but he was also working for them in a different capacity 20 years ago and has quite the story to share as well. And he joins me now. David, thank you. Well, happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. 
what a day. I think we many of us who were there, I was just mentioning that I was in New York City when this all happened, uh, and that was quite the scene. And uh, you you have a great story about where you were this day 20 years ago as well. Yeah, it, it's, um, well, it, it's a story that I'll never forget. In fact, I was at a barbecue yesterday afternoon, like a, a poolside barbecue with friends, and I went on to elaborate on, on in great detail what, uh, what happened on August 14th of 2003. But I was, uh, um, it was a working day like, like every other day. I was actually on a plane touching down at Pearson, flying back from Princeton, New Jersey, um, and I was on a, um, a small committee charged with creating the first version of the standards that we now adhere to today to prevent this from happening. So it was extremely ironic. Uh, I landed right at 410. We taxied over to the gate. And I, I noticed that the, um, the bridge that normally connects, you know, the terminal to, to the plane uh, wasn't coming out. Right. So you you don't think too much of that. Right. So figuring there was maybe um, a mechanical issue with that. So, you know, not thinking too much of it. So you see the, the individual wheeling out the, the, um, the ladder. And then we, you know, we, we exit the plane and then walking through the terminal, then, you know, you get to customs and well, it was, it was a bit chaotic. Because <laughs> they weren't sure. allowing people yeah. to go through, right? So, you know, people are asking questions. What's taking so long? Why is it so dark? You know, all that sort of good jazz. And, um, you know, after a few minutes, and I forget how long this had, this time had elapsed, and there was an individual that came out sort of waving his arms, saying, um, you know, sorry, folks, we're just getting on backup power. Um, we've, had a, uh, we've had a blackout to the eastern seaboard. The Eastern Seaboard. I mean, when you heard that, you must have, for you especially, you must have been thinking the worst. Oh, absolutely. It was, you know, well, one, is it true? So you sort of, you know, like people tend to not being in the industry, not, you know, they hear something and then, you know, it's that sort of issue, right? So how bad is this? Is it it localized or is it really the Eastern Seaboard? Um, I'm stuck in, you know, I didn't have a cell phone back then. Right. I can't contact anybody. I felt helpless. Right. Um, so anyways, it, it was indeed true. It took me a few hours to get through through customs eventually. And then many more hours. I live in Burlington, which is about uh, normally about a 40 minute, 45 minute drive from uh, Pearson. And uh, by the time I got home, it was close to midnight. And then I'm trying to contact the office to say, OK, well, you know, what state are we in? Um, how far are we along in the in the restoration? Like, how bad truly is it? Right. So yeah, you forget that back then we were so much more or less we were much less connected than we are twenty years later. And as I, in New York, I mean, people thought it was a terrorist attack. No one knew what was going on. Everyone was literally in the dark. Oh, literally in the dark, and it was um, it was a bit strange because by the time I got back home, the power had already been restored to my house. Right. Right. So, um, you know, when I opened up the door and, and uh, asked my wife, uh, you know, how are you? You know, haven't seen her in a couple of days. <laughs> and she goes, is it true? Is it true? And I said, well, I all I have is bits and pieces. I'm going to have to, you know, call somebody. Right. And, and, and that was a bit of a chore also. Right. Because a lot of the communication infrastructure wasn't working the best. And, um, 
And eventually I got a hold of someone to say, okay, well, you know, the backbone of the system has now been restored and we're just in the process of, you know, connecting, you know, customers to, to the grid, which, which we had, um, you know, restored all the load. We call it load, but customers to the grid uh, the following day. Yeah, because even in New York, I mean, I think it was maybe that night that the power came back on. So in in or maybe a little bit later, maybe it was overnight. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it was not a long lasting uh, outage in most places. But I guess just the size of it and then the fact that it hits so many massive population centers. I mean, New York City and Toronto alone uh, really was what the impact, the legacy of it was the fact that it hit so many people all at once. Yeah, well, if you look at, um, you know, the, the province of Ontario. Uh, the state of New York, the state of Pennsylvania, half of Ohio, like we're, we're talking 50 million people that were impacted. Quite devastating. You know, uh, we we train our operators, um, uh, you know, through back then we didn't have a simulator. Today we have a simulator to to sort of walk the operators through an event like this, much like a, what, what a pilot goes through in terms of flight simulation. Right. In, in our control room, but we didn't have that back then. So everything was sort of academic, right? And But to put it into play or into practice is a completely different thing. And um, the, the folks did an outstanding job of staying calm, cool, collected. And it was not just, you know, the, the, the room or the control room at the ISO. It's all the, all the, I'll call them market participants, right? The generators and the transmission owners out there that, you know, we all work together with a common objective of um, restoring the grid. Right. Because you mentioned earlier that this was already, the warnings had been there, that something like this could happen and that infrastructure has been left to, I mean, I, I lived through the ice storm in 1998 in Montreal and you know, that, that raised sure. a lot of issues about, about resilience. And you had already been talking about this for quite a while when 2003 was really a wake-up call, I, I, I gather. Yeah, and, and the, the one thing you cannot do is, is prevent an ice storm, right? Ice storms are going to happen you can sort of build your system out to be a little bit more resilient, but there's a cost implication to doing that. Uh, but the, 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 the unique thing with 2003 was it was very preventable. There was nothing unique that happened that um, was not preventable on that day um, for, for, the, for the entity just outside of Cleveland. So very, very preventable. That's why I'm confident in, in today's environment that given the standards that have been written and have matured over the last 20 years, that um, under preventable conditions, if I can use that term loosely, um, you know, we, we're not going to have something this catastrophic. Now, on the other hand, you have extreme conditions, right? Like ice storms, like you just uh, suggested in 1998. I, I, I lived it in the control room here at, at the ISO the 1998, so Eastern Ontario, and then the devastation right. in, in Quebec. But we rely on our good operating practices, our excellent training, you know, our simulator training to uh, to uh, help restore power to customers as soon as as soon as possible. David Robitaille is with us this half hour. He's Senior Director of Market Operations at the Independent Electricity System Operator in in Ontario. We're talking about the 20th anniversary of the Great Northeastern Blackout. 50 million people, 10 million people here in Canada, uh, in, in Ontario, plunged into darkness all at once, it turned out, by a very small glitch. A reminder about exactly what happened, because it was a very, it felt like, you know, the usual, the butterfly flaps its wings sort of, sort of event. Yeah, well, it, it happened just outside of Cleveland. Um, the the entity responsible for, I'll call it the reliability and the operation of the system there, they had lost visibility of their system. 
Right. So they had some, some technical difficulties and there was a generator that tripped and it was a heavily, it, it was, it was a heavy load day in, in the, uh, in Ontario and it was on hot, the right? Of course, it yeah. was hot. Yeah. It was very hot. The demands were very high. It was right over pretty much the peak hour of the day, right? Just after 4 PM. So that, so all the lines are heavily loaded to meet the, those peak demands or loads for, for, for those conditions and a generator tripped. And then what happens is the load continues to consume, but the, the energy needs to flow across less, um, less um, elements, if you will. And when a transmission circuit heats up, it expands. It's steel, right? Aluminum reinforced steel. And then what happened in Ohio is uh, as that expands, it sagged into the vegetation or the trees, so uh, that entity was not doing the tree trimming that they were supposed to do, which now is a, is a reliability standard. So now they're, they're obligated and, they're, and they have to prove compliance to that, that they do their trimming. And then from there, once a tree hit, um, uh, sorry, once the circuit hit a tree, it tripped and then so on and so forth. Pardon the pun, it cascaded. It cascaded, right? It right. Ca- cascaded right to the eastern, uh, right to New York, down through, you know, northern Virginia, and then over to to Ontario, and as as you said, uh, Ben, uh, fifty million people were plunged into the darkness within seconds. It was uh, so. Twenty years later, uh, and I've been reading some articles about this today. Obviously, it seems like lessons were learned, but of course, there's a lot more demand these days too. So there are more strains on a system, but a system that's that learned some that learned from two thousand and three clearly. There's a few things that we learned from from that. Well, more than a few things. I'm I'm sort of exaggerating what I just say. A few um, interdependencies is, is being one. So how the how the electrical grid is dependent on other infrastructure, telecom as being an example, right? Uh, the gas infrastructure as being another example, right? Because a lot of the a lot of the generation that is produced in today's environment, not only in Ontario but in the surrounding areas, depends on gas being supplied to the generator. So we need to understand to a certain degree what the the status of the gas uh, fleet and gas industry is doing in order to understand its impact to the, to the electrical industry. And so interdependencies being one, but the biggest uh, by far, in my opinion, is the, the standards. So we didn't have sanctionable and enforceable standards prior to we did in Ontario, but we didn't, in, and I talk about the, the interconnection at large, did not have that. So hence me, I was in, in the process of writing those when, uh, when um, uh, I was returning from Princeton, New Jersey. But um, that's the biggest thing. Right. And it's a story, I guess, every, every, every time this anniversary rolls around, you get to tell this story again. As you've, as you've spent 20, 20, the 20 years since at the same place in the same industry, watching it evolve as well. That's right. Um, so lots of like a, a lot of things have evolved, right? So the the uh, the resource mix has evolved, you know, and it's going to continue to evolve moving forward. You know, uh, the ambient conditions that we see today ha- have been evolving, so we're preparing on how to continue to react to those moving forward. Standards have been created and evolve. Our training has evolved. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, prior to 2003, we did not have a simulator for our operators. Today, we have a simulator. So we can put them through sort of the paces of what, um, of what a blackout feels like in the room and you know how you go ahead and restore it. So a lot of changes in, in the last 20 years. It seems like a long time. 
uh, but it, it's it's gone by very quickly. Indeed, and I guess we'll all remember where we were on this day back in uh, 2003. David, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting topic because it came up as well. We talked about the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the Great Northeastern Blackout in the last uh, half hour. And now we're going to talk about power more generally because it's become an issue again in this country with these clean energy regulations that the government wants to put out or that has put out uh, trying to uh, green up the power grid by 2035. Um, Of course, Alberta's put a pause on renewable projects for a while uh, for a number of reasons, wanting to figure out what they're going to do with the legacy of them and so on, make sure that they're cleaned up for afterwards. There's obviously a lot of a lot of ideology going on in here too. It's uh, it's ironic that Texas is is the leader in in America when it comes to renewable energy projects. Uh, Alberta is certainly a powerhouse when it comes to renewable energy in this country. And it feels like, wow, you know, why don't you just get on with it and do it properly? Because it's it'll work. You'll make money at it. You're good at power. Do it. Um, but Danielle Smith was out today talking again about how she's not uh, obviously not happy about the federal government's proposed clean energy re- uh, regulations and their decision uh, to put that six-month moratorium on approving new wind and solar power projects. Um, here's what she had to say today in Calgary. Well, I, I think the the approach often with, with the Liberal government is to set a target but actually not have a plan to achieve it. And and the problem is, is that they don't acknowledge the challenges that different provinces face. And they're not really putting in place the framework to make it happen. Yeah, that doesn't sound like Daniel. <laughs> That's Jagmeet Singh. He was out today talking about this as well. He was in Edmonton. Uh, here's Daniel Smith. Ask them not to go to war with us. We said we want to work with you. Come to the table. Let's figure out a way that we can get there by 2050. And they chose to do this instead. So uh, we, we're going to fight it. Uh, we're hoping to come to the table. We're hoping to be able to get them to a point where they agree that aligning with 2050 is the sustainable policy. Right. So lots of talk about power here. One of the interesting things about Alberta and Saskatchewan, both uh, provincial governments, they're very much opposed to this, say they can't possibly hit net zero by 2035. It has to be a 2050 date, is that they're sandwiched. Now, both those provinces have different ways of producing electricity, but they're sandwiched between two electricity producing powerhouses. I mean, Manitoba and BC produce a lot of hydro, so much so they sell it to the U.S., to states in the U.S., are quite profitable, that is. Uh, I was just in Quebec City. There's, uh, if, you're, if you've ever been there, if you've been in a place called Ile d'Orléans, you see these massive electric uh, pylons, these massive, they're like skyscraper-sized pylons running all this electricity that Quebec sells to New England, right? I mean, this is lucrative stuff, and it gets you thinking, how come we don't go the other way? How come so much of the electricity here goes north-south, not across the country? Why don't we help each other out? Uh, because oftentimes, if you think about Alberta's situation and Saskatchewan's situation, if they could tap into what BC and Manitoba have and use their renewables, for instance, Saskatchewan and Alberta, both great places for renewables, if they could then use those and give those to BC and Manitoba, wouldn't that be great? We could all help each other out when it comes to this electricity grid issue about uh, producing cleaner uh, cleaner energy as uh, the government is looking for. And that way, we might even see it at the end of the day, we could produce the kind of power in this country um, in a way, if it was coordinated, for instance, that might help everybody out. Most importantly, because I think most of us who pay power bills don't really care where the power comes from, right? Uh, What we want is good, reliable power, not too expensive. So what about a national power grid? Could that be the solution? In other words, do a lot more business uh, east-west instead of so much business north-south. Now, 
it's an idea that's interesting. There's a real challenge to it on many many levels. Uh, but joining me now is Kristen von Biesenbaugh. She knows all about this. She's a professor of law at the California Western School of Law, but spent a lot of time at the University of Calgary. Uh, Kristen, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is, I mean, I, I was explaining that I was, we were talking about the 30th anniversary of the great blackout and how all that interconnectivity between power grids south and north of the border happened. I was just in, in Quebec watching those giant power lines that send electricity, as you mentioned, very profitably to the south. It's not anyone's imagination. Our entire power grid is kind of built north-south, not across our own country. That's right. Yes. For many years, I think uh, the provinces that have had a wealth of, especially hydroelectric power, have been selling their power to the South, strengthening those economic ties to the states immediately south of them. And yeah, there has not been really much attention at all to East-West connections. There are a few across Canada, but they really pale in comparison to the amount of uh, electricity trade that goes north to south. Is that just based purely on the economics of it? You were mentioning, of course, that that Manitoba, BC, uh, Quebec sell an awful lot of power to the US. Is it just the economics of, of how it made sense to build? I think so. And I think you're talking about, in some cases, it's also sort of which state uh, is directly beneath you. Because right. if you're talking about U.S. states with really high population densities, then you have a lot of demand. Whereas sometimes neighboring provinces, you feel like, well, we could build something over there, but there's just not as much demand. Um, and the U.S. also has, at least especially since the, the 1990s, um, a much more liberalized electricity market. So it's not that difficult to sell power in the United States. Whereas here, if you want to try to buy and sell power across provincial borders, it can get very complicated because the different provinces have different electricity markets. And so they might be concerned about the possibility of being exposed to higher prices in neighboring provinces if they were to start buying and selling. There clearly are benefits to the way the system is structured now. I suppose the main one that comes to mind for a non-expert, it would be the fact that the money pays for the infrastructure, right? I mean, it's profitable, so it gets built. Yes. I mean, certainly, yes. The U.S. has been very interested in purchasing cheap Canadian hydropower for quite a while. When you're selling something in U.S. dollars, there's there's that. It's a, you know, you're making even more money than it appears on the tin. When you know that you're going to be able to make your money back quickly, you don't have as many concerns about being able to absorb the capital cost of building transmission lines, which are very expensive. And yet we have all these conversations. I mean, clearly, when it comes to pipelines, we have these conversations all the time. Yet we rarely talk about the fact that our, our power grid is is not, doesn't cross our own provincial borders in any significant way. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think part of it, too, is because there's more delicate politics at play a lot of the time with electricity, because you're talking about, in many provinces, crown corporations that, that are controlling the electricity system. It's somehow easier and less politically charged to go after a private company than to go after, for example, BC Hydro. Right. I, I mean, that's that the system is set up quite differently across the country, right? For the for listeners who don't know, I mean, one of the things with utilities is you don't really know much about them until you actually have to pay them, right? I remember moving to England and realizing that everything was deregulated, right? So there are many different systems within Canada. Yes, each province, I think it's fair to say that each province has its own unique electricity system. And in fact, a concern over the possibility that uh, the federal government might begin to try meddling in electricity systems uh, is behind the reason why you actually see in uh, the Constitution Act, there is a specific provision that gives provinces sole power over electricity infrastructure within their borders. And we're seeing some of that pushback already. I mean, one thinks of Danielle Smith in, in Alberta. I mean, this is obviously, and, and Scott Moe in, in Saskatchewan. I mean, these are sort of cloaked in the idea of, 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 you know, meeting certain targets and so on. But part of it is is the fact that electricity has been for a very long time a provincial domain and one that they're quite protective of. 
That's right. Provincial domain and in in many cases, provincially owned. And so there is this sort of sense, too, of accountability to the people of a province that's coming right from the provincial government, as opposed to, you know, if if a private oil sands company, for example, makes a bad gamble, that's for their shareholders to deal with. Whereas, you know, if a provincial utility makes a bad bet, the money is, you know, potentially lost. And that's something you have to answer to the taxpayers for. Right. What are the drawbacks then of the way the system has been built uh, so far, at least? I think one of the biggest drawbacks, it just so happens, this I think is a really strange kind of twist of fate, but it just so happens that of all the provinces in Canada that are going to have real difficulty with meeting this aggressive uh, decarbonization target of 2035 for the entire electricity system, the provinces that are going to have the hardest time doing that are Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia because they don't have those big hydro resources. And that is a historical economic choice driven by a lot of different factors a very long time ago. So it's not a decision that was made because, you know, because we didn't believe in climate change. This was way before anybody had any idea about that. Um, And so it just so happens, though, that each one of those provinces is the neighbor of provinces that has significant hydro resources. It also just so happens, though, that all of those hydro-rich provinces have been selling their power to the U.S. for a very long time, decades. There is this sort of sense of you're asking now for these hydro-rich provinces like B.C., like Manitoba, uh, like um, some of the Maritimes, to decouple from lucrative economic relationships with utilities in the United States in order to go into this uncharted territory of trying to connect to their neighboring provinces and not really knowing how is that going to work? How do we know that it's going to work out for us financially? Should we be doing this out of the goodness of our hearts? Like that's not the way we think about electricity trade. So it's just a very different way of thinking about things, very different relationships. Right. And as you mentioned already, politically rife as well. I mean, it's it's very easy for Quebec to sell or, or Manitoba to sell its power south, right? It doesn't, if there are issues and so on, all the all the kerfuffle happens on the other side of the border to other elected officials. That's been historically true, although you've seen not very long ago, actually, Quebec, Hydro-Quebec mm-hmm. has a very lucrative contract to sell uh, hydropower in Massachusetts. Right. But it's having difficulty completing the line because a, a state referendum was held in, held in Maine the transmission line to reach uh, Massachusetts from Quebec has to go through Maine. Uh, And so we've seen already that state politics now are beginning to sometimes derail projects that used to be, I think, very uncontroversial. So even there's, that's another reason to start thinking, have you fully explored the possibility of selling power to the other provinces? Are you sure that it doesn't make sense to do that? Because it, it might be a little bit easier, especially because there actually is uh, some constitutional authority for the federal government to play a role in any interprovincial connection. Kristen Van Biesenbos is a professor of law at the California Western School of Law, but spent a lot of time at the University of Calgary as well, understands these issues very well. And we're talking about that does Canada need a nationwide power grid? Uh, we've obviously the need for decarbonization, the need for electricity is mounting, of course, with a move towards electric vehicles and so on. How do you make that happen when provinces that are hydro or power rich in this in this country tend to send a lot of their surplus lucratively south of the border. Kristen, when you look at the need, tell me a bit about the nationwide grid, because you explained earlier before we started the interview, you said, this is an idea that I used to talk about. People thought it was ridiculous. And now all of a sudden, people are taking it quite seriously. 
I think the biggest driver really is this idea that we are trying to decarbonize in a very short time frame. Um, one of the things that we are just beginning to sort of see people model and explore is the possibility of if you actually sort of combined the energy strengths of the different provinces, could you actually decarbonize more quickly if you had more of these east to west interconnections? And I think actually one of the biggest places in the country where there's a lot of potential for this, but it would take some really monumental policy changes and bringing provinces to the table in a way they've never had to come together before. But the idea of a Western Canadian grid, because you have from Manitoba to British Columbia, you have Manitoba and BC that have these tremendous hydro resources. But Alberta has the largest share of wind and solar power right now in Canada, even though they just put a freeze on those investments. And I, there's no question in my mind that the greatest wind power potential in Canada is in Saskatchewan. It hasn't been built out, though, uh, because SAS Power is the owner of most of the electricity infrastructure in Saskatchewan, and they're not particularly interested in wind power at the moment. But if there were a reason to do it, if the incentives were there, you have tremendous renewables resources in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan that would match up very nicely with the needs of Manitoba and British Columbia, and then also vice versa. So there's a lot of potential there. Right. And and it feels like, I mean, if you're an individual power bill, utility bill payer in any one of these provinces, your allegiance to some strange idea that you can't have renewables in your province or somehow it must be the way it is. All you really want is to have reliable electricity that you don't pay too much for. And it feels like the provinces could actually help each other out with that, especially out west. I think that's absolutely true. All of those renewable resources are significantly cheaper than any power that's generated from a fossil fuel plant, for example. I mean, the easiest explanation for why that is, is just the lack of fuel cost. Once you've paid off the capital cost of a dam, for example, it's not that expensive to run it. I mean, the fuel is the water. Just run the water through the turbines on the schedule, and then you've got your power generating. Uh, likewise, with wind and solar, if the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, you are generating power. So they're a lot cheaper. What What's going to cost a lot of money is building the infrastructure, but the federal government has indicated that it would be willing to foot a substantial part of that bill. Then the question becomes, how do you bring the provinces to the table and what kind of system do you try to put together that would do something about these electricity market mismatches? Because the, the electricity markets, the way they've been structured in those four different provinces, they're each unique from each other. And they have very different sort of benchmark electricity prices. BC power is a lot cheaper than Alberta power. And BC ratepayers do not want to pay really expensive electricity bills just to help Alberta decarbonize. I think that's an understandable feeling. So how do you get these provinces to come together in the first place? But then how do you design a trading system that doesn't leave anybody holding a much larger electricity bill than they were holding before? It's It would be very tricky. It's not impossible, but it would be, I think, a tremendous undertaking. Yeah, it feels like it would need the kind of... Um the kind of understanding and negotiating that we're not seeing a whole lot of when it comes to, to discussions about energy period these days. It's true. It's true. Especially with, I have to say, having lived in Alberta for many years, it's very frustrating to see um, the way that decarbonization and fighting climate change has been so politicized. Uh, because in some ways, Canada is uniquely positioned to be able to decarbonize its electricity grid faster than any other developed nation in the world. It already has the highest percentage of its power coming from non-renewables because of all the large-scale hydro. So there's only actually about 20% of its total electricity mix that they need to decarbonize. It just happens happens that almost all of that 20% is in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia. And then, of course, to say nothing of the territories, but... Right. 
the places where there isn't enough renewable power, it's very difficult to try to change that, not just for all the technical reasons that we've talked about, but also because, you know, you hear what the politicians in Alberta and Saskatchewan are saying, and it's pretty clear that they are antagonistic to the idea of decarbonizing. But maybe those, I mean, and again, I understand why that is, but maybe uh, utility bill payers in those provinces might be quite warm to the idea that they could get cheaper power if only BC would send them some their way and then allow their renewables, their renewable sector to grow because it wouldn't be so sporadic. I, I think that's absolutely true. Alberta ratepayers in particular, I think, would really appreciate lower electricity bills. Electricity in Alberta has skyrocketed over the last few years, and it's getting very difficult. It's really straining affordability. Living in Alberta right now is is much more expensive than really it has to be, partially because those electricity bills are unbelievably high. And how optimistic are you then? I mean, when we talk nationwide grid, there are obviously other countries where, we, you know, I mean, Canada is, is unique in its size and, and where its population is. So it's always a bit of a strange conversation because it's true. A lot of what you mentioned it earlier, a lot of what BC has built, what Quebec has built sort of goes from populated area or from distant northern dam through populated area into very heavy populated areas. Whereas to build it across Canada, you'd be talking about a lot of places that where there wouldn't be a lot of money to be made, right? That's the tricky thing about it. That's right. I mean, now, the nice thing, though, about interconnections is that the interconnections really create a sort of highway system where the power can flow between the provinces, not having really any regard to which side of the border are you on, but just asking where's the demand. So moving the power around where it's needed. I mean, Alberta and British Columbia already have one interconnection, and that interconnection has actually really saved Albertans, uh, some real headaches. Alberta doesn't always have as much power as it should have in the summer because in the in the past it hasn't needed it. BC is a summer peaking province, so it's used to long hot summers where you have a lot of power, especially for running air conditioning. Alberta's not used to it. The last two years they've been caught off guard. The grid has almost been stressed to the point of potentially triggering a blackout. And what stopped it happening in at least two instances that I know of was being able to pull power from British Columbia. So it's not just the question of being able to move renewables around in a more efficient way, but it's also just about having that extra reliability. The more connections that you have, the more reliable the power is. And it makes so much sense. I wonder if it's ever going to happen. Krista, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thank you. Back from two weeks off, so just settling back into things. And of course, uh, the weather was pretty good. We were back east in Ottawa and Montreal, Quebec City for a little bit. It was rainy in Quebec City and a little chilly, but not so bad. And we step off the plane yesterday in Vancouver, and it's boiling. Another heat wave uh, has hit uh, the province, uh, central BC, across southern central BC and into southern Alberta as well. There are warnings. A special weather statement is out. Um, Here we are again. By 3 p.m. today, at least eight daily heat records had fallen across BC. That matched the eight that fell on Sunday as well. The 40-degree benchmark was also broken for the first time in the country this year with 40.2 degrees Celsius being recorded in Lytton, B.C. on Monday afternoon. You'll, of course, remember the name Lytton from the heat dome a few years back and that devastating wildfire that destroyed that small town. They're still rebuilding. So, uh, again, you know, another another hot day here, another heat wave hitting B.C., and it's raised some of the concerns that were certainly raised after that heat dome back in 2021. Advocates want municipalities to consider setting maximum temperatures that rental units are allowed to reach 
Uh, we have those things in the winter for low temperatures. They want them for high temperatures. Emily Rogers is Director of Operations for Victoria's Together Against Poverty Society. And she says renters are most often or often the most vulnerable during extreme heat. We know that renters are more likely to be people with disabilities. We know renters are more likely to be seniors on fixed income. Uh, we know that renters are more likely to uh, not have access to outdoor spaces or sometimes not even have balconies. So for all of these folks, the more medically vulnerable you are, the more susceptible you are to extreme heat. Right. And again, in B.C., uh, part of that is informed by what happened in 2021. 600 people, more than 600 people died as a result of extreme temperatures that uh, hit uh, went above 40 degrees Celsius in many parts of the province back in 2021. And of course, there was that fire in Lytton. Uh, and what a summer it's been right across the country. There's been more than our fair share of destructive weather events from record wildfires, with the latest hotspot being in the Northwest Territories. The city of Yellowknife declared a state of local emergency tonight due to surrounding wildfires. Um, and it has just been one of those years, sizzling heat, massive wildfires, flooding, drought, record hot ocean temperatures down in, sort of, in Florida. Scientists see further, further warning signs in all of it about a changing climate and the impact it will continue to have on us. So where to from here? Because some of this, I mean, listen, not all of it is due to climate change. We know that, right? And, and you know, part of it is figuring out what is and what isn't. But we do know that weather is becoming more extreme. That's been predict predicted for a very long time. And that the changing climate has an impact on that. Um, my next guest spent a year working on what this could mean for Canada in the future. What will this country be like to live in, say, in 2060? It's an assessment that is scary at times and sobering, but not without optimism. Joining me now is Anna Shabata-Castleman. She's an author and science journalist. Uh, her latest for Maclean's magazine is Canada in the year 2060. And uh, she joins me now. And thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. What a prescient time to write this, because I think this summer has been one of those summers that none of us is going to soon forget anywhere in the country. And yet you started your article with with something that anyone who was in B.C. at the time, as I was, knows very well. And that was the heat dome in 2021, which felt like one of those once in a millennia events. But but clearly it was a good place to start the story that you wanted to tell. Why was that? It became clear that. Canada has already experienced in pockets, in very dramatic pockets, its own climate future already. I live in Vancouver, so I lived through that event, and I consider it a sentinel climate change event. And so once I started researching climate impacts in Canada, I realized that the heat dome here, with a few, with few exceptions, encompasses all these different aspects of climate change that are going to impact Canadians the most. So it involved extreme heat. Hundreds of British Columbians died over that week. Crops failed. Livestock, hundreds of thousands of livestock perished in the Fraser Valley. Shellfish were decimated along our coasts. And then, of course, it parched the landscape and primed it for all these fires, which resulted most dramatically in the burning of the entire village of Lytton. Later on in the year, all that charred and dried out land was under a deluge from these atmospheric rivers in November. And of course, that, that all that water landed not on a typical kind of wet, spongy earth, but essentially like Teflon. 
And so it exacerbated these dramatic floods that severed tens of highways across British Columbia. So all of a sudden, in that one example, we had heat stress, heat death, um, labor productivity declines, huge economic losses, agriculture impacts. And then we also had fire and floods. Part of it, I think, that I've found interesting as well is that I think when we talked about we'll call it global warming because that's the term that was used for so long. We used to think of it, oh, you know, it'll, it'll just get hotter, right? It'll, it'll just be warmer in Canada. Why not? That's not so bad. And I don't think we ever thought about the chain reaction part of it. And I think what, what came out, of course, at the beginning of your article, and then you talk about it through the rest of it, really is this idea of how everything is connected and all these things are connected. And it doesn't just get warmer, it gets more extreme. And when it gets more extreme, it dries out faster. And all these things pair up or at least connect to create some of the stuff we've been seeing this summer as well. Because, of course, you talk about the heat dome, but I suppose if you'd written this in a year's time, there would have been many other things you could have touched on this summer as well. For sure. And and I'm so glad to hear that that came through because that was one of the things that I, I tried to um, tease apart was just these cascading impacts, right? As you pointed out, a lot of us think sort of of the direct warming, but there are these second and third order impacts um, that amplify throughout our well-being, our health, our ecosystems, our economy. And so similar to the heat dome and kind of teasing apart those cascading impacts of that one heat event in BC, the rest of the article sort of tries to get into some of those second and third order impacts on our health, on our mental health, on our social cohesion and political extremism, economic impacts. You know, security experts have long called climate change sort of a threat amplifier. Uh, That sort of seemed, I think, quite abstract for a lot of us for a long time. But once you start digging into it, you can see already how the impacts do cascade and amplify and grow in sometimes very unexpected but significant ways. One of the things I think I've interviewed Armel Castellan with Environment Canada, who you spoke to, who's out here, who does a lot of um, interviews when it comes to extreme weather and forecasting and so on. And you spoke to a lot of other people. One of the things that I've always found interesting about some of what we've been seeing lately is that even for those who spent their entire careers modeling this stuff, they've been shocked. People have been shocked. I was speaking to someone last week at the NOAA about about ocean temperatures off the coast of Florida, and they're shocked. And that's what really stood out to me as well, is that even those that we consider to be experts in these fields have been taken aback by what we've been seeing. I know. And that's so sobering because these are people who have dedicated their intellects and their careers to understanding the impact of our greenhouse gas emissions on our planet systems and yet they are being surprised for the worse, like the impacts are happening faster and the extremes that we are experiencing are well outside the bounds of what they ever could have anticipated. And so Armel, he's, he's such a thoughtful person to talk to about this. And he said, you know, we have to stay humble to what these impacts are going to look like because we can plan and we can anticipate, but there are going to be surprises in store for us, which is sort of all the more reason to be clear-eyed and to plan as best as we can. Yeah, and Shabata Castleman is a science journalist. She's with us uh, talking uh, this hour about an article she's just written for McLean's magazine. It's out in the September issue called Canada in 2060. It looks at uh, the changing, well, the changing just about everything, how climate change will impact uh, Canada in many different ways, Uh, not just 
the warming of things, but as we've seen over the past while, uh, it is all connected in some way, shape, or form. But what are some of the things that you found most surprising when you looked at ahead to 2060? What did you hear from people that that took you that that surprised you, considering how much research you would have done before setting out to write this? It's such a good question. There were so many things that that really struck me, and I and I worked very hard to try and overturn those rocks that hadn't really been overturned so much, I think, in the magazine world, certainly, in, and hopefully in journalism, to kind of present readers with angles to this that they hadn't maybe considered before. One thing that was very surprising to me, especially as I started talking to the social scientists and the security experts, the political scientists, is that all of them sort of seem to acknowledge this huge change in almost like a paradigm in how we have to live within the planetary boundaries. Um, And by planetary boundaries, I essentially mean we live on a planet with finite resources, and yet we have been treating it like it's a planet with infinite resources. And up until now, Canada has I mean, it's made us massively wealthy. I mean, we are a vast nation. We have incredible natural resources and they have made us rich and prosperous and very comfortable. But all of these people who sort of seem to be very attuned to kind of the bigger picture and where we are today relative to the to sort of human history and and how we need to adapt to sort of these limits that we are reaching was very eye-opening because I hadn't I hadn't actually heard that mainstream before. You know, up until now, the idea has been that we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, which obviously we do. That's sort of the most acute action item um, on the table right now. But they all seem to recognize that w- there has to come a shift in thinking towards long-term prosperity and long-term security over short-term gain and the peril that that comes to Canada if we fail to do so. I mean, you point out examples of it. Some of them are the fact that, you know, big cities such as Toronto and Montreal, Vancouver will see a lot more hot days than they used to. And that has implications for the people. I mean, we built this country for a certain temperature range. And I think what we're seeing is even a slight shift in that is going to make a big difference. And and how do you prepare for that? And it's not all about greenhouse gas reduction, but it's also preparing for the inevitable change. As you've mentioned, we're already seeing a bit of it. But you also had pointed out in one area that that I found really interesting was just some areas that don't need more water are going to get wetter and areas that need water are going to get drier. And that also, too, is going to have an impact. Yes. I mean, the that was sort of one thing that was very both stressful to research and report this and very eye-opening was the scale of change. And already Canada has experienced a lot of change. I mean, essentially, the climate controls everything. And as you recognized, we have benefited from a stable temperature range um, and we've built our world for it everything from agriculture to water resources, as you say, even extreme weather events. You know, there was an analysis done of Ontario's infrastructure, so bridges, highways, all that sort of glue that holds together our society, transports people, transports goods. And the climate impacts just from heat stress and extreme rainfall events are going to be costing that entire infrastructure system, which is sort of the heartbeat of Canada. 
uh, $170 billion this century alone. And if we sort of are clear-eyed about adapting it and being more proactive about the changes to this infrastructure, widening culverts, making sure that the footings on bridges don't erode from extreme rainfall events, um, repaving, changing the viscosity of our asphalt and our pavements so that they don't warp and crack in extreme heat and rainfall and and freeze cycles. Um, I mean, already that would save us $7 billion or so. So, yeah, so there's a lot of change that's coming and we can adapt to it. But if we don't plan to adapt, it's going to cost us so much more. We saw that, I think. I was interviewing the mayor of a small uh, community in Nova Scotia recently who said, listen, we just weren't, nothing built around here from the roads to the culverts, as you were just talking about, was built for 200 millimeters of rain in 11 hours. It just wasn't. So when you get that kind of extreme event, it doesn't mean the rest of the year, and we hear this a lot from um, from people saying, well, you know, the weather's not changing that much. These extreme events, though, are a reminder of just what it can do to the infrastructure of a place that's not built for them, right? Whether it be Fiona or we saw with the, the flooding or even the fires. You could just take Nova Scotia this year as a microcosm of all that we're talking about. Certainly. I mean, I wasn't able to get into it that much. And the climate science is, I think, rapidly trying to figure out what's happening with extreme events, which are very hard to predict and model. But the extreme events hit thresholds. And it's sort of like I liken it to a city experiencing an earthquake beyond um, the seismic codes that its buildings are built to, you know, with the with the heat dome in BC in 2021, a recent uh, study found that hospital equipment was failing because it just it was too hot. And we even saw lately with some extreme heat events in the United States, planes had to reduce their loads so that they could get lift, you know, so even things like our medications are stable within a certain temperature range. Once some medications get too warm, their efficacy either drops or they actually start to act differently with the human body. So there, there are all these aspects of essentially shifting our, our environment to extremes of heat and let's say extremes of rainfall, extremes of these, these fire infernos that are so impactful. And it's very, I mean, it can be very frightening. And and certainly for us now, as we're sort of coming to grips with, with what we are now experiencing, these are the types of events that have not been experienced in generations. And Shabata Castleman is with us this hour. She is a science journalist and author. Uh, her latest article for McLean's magazine is a prescient one. It's called Canada in 2060. It's out in the uh, September edition of McLean's, and it really is a long-form article looking forward 35 years to where this country is headed, uh, mainly with the impacts of climate change. And we've seen a lot of it. I mean, again, uh, this can become a very divisive argument over time, but there's no denying the sorts of extreme weather events we've seen right across the country over the past uh, several years. I'm sure wherever you live, you've probably experienced at least one of them, if it's not drought or flood or fire or a heat dome or uh, or something along those lines. And and when you looked at some of the, I mean, you've talked a bit about just the impact this is having, because it's very easy, and you're, you mentioned specifically younger people, uh, and just how doom and gloom it can be when you think, wow, the, you know, no one's doing anything about this, or people aren't doing enough about this, right? And of course, there's a political argument that goes on about how much needs to be done now, and what about China, and so on and so forth. But without getting bogged down into that, there are some really some real impacts going on to people's mental health as well, people's physical and mental health. We're se- sort of seeing this 
People are very concerned about this, needless to say. But you found some cause for optimism as well. It's not all doom and gloom, even though a lot of it in 2060 is certainly a changed Canada is what comes out from your article. Absolutely. I mean, that was sort of one, that was kind of where I landed after kind of living in Canada's climate future for the six months that I was working on this piece was that we have a really big change in store for us. And, you know, you can think of it as bad, but it is sort of inevitable. And the good news is that some of it is baked in, but essentially there are still, thankfully, pathways open to us where if we manage to cut our greenhouse gas emissions and invest in the adaptation planning to kind of blunt the edge of these impacts on people's everyday lives, it's not going to be that bad. You know, sort of the the really apocalyptic scenarios of planetary warming of four or five, six degrees by century's end, that is not what we are on track for right now. So the UN, I think it was last year, essentially reported with all the climate policies around the world that are in place right now, we're looking at a global warming of around 2.7 to 2.8 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So already we've shaved that sort of forecast down our climate action and our economic efficiency and our energy transition away from fossil fuels has shaved off degrees of what's in store and we can still shave it down even more. One thing that was very striking to me, you sort of mentioned the mental health impacts on youth and that was something that really started to sit with me the more I researched this and I spoke to people was just how much this country is letting down its children and its youth. Because someone who's 18 years old today, coming out of high school, I mean, they have decades ahead of them. And those decades, we know the first several decades of that will continue to warm no matter what, because essentially there's a time lag between the emissions we have are producing today um, versus the effect that they have on the climate. And so imagine how it feels to sort of be in your 20s and look around you and see insufficient climate action and see that everyone's sort of acting like everything's normal. You know, people are still driving around in their gas-powered cars. Canada's national emissions are barely being dented by climate action and climate policy so far. You know, there are a lot of things in the pipeline that will start to take more of a bite out of our national emissions, but it does feel like a huge betrayal. And I don't know if older Canadians really can understand how significant that is. If you are a younger Canadian and you feel a hopelessness about the future and you look around and you see the adults in the room not really taking any steps to invest in your country's future well-being and prosperity. It's an interesting one because when you look at it, I mean, clearly the science changes, right? I mean, that's what science does over time. We learn. We learn more. Things that we thought were going to happen don't. Uh, 
um, things that we didn't know were going to happen, happen. Uh, and in some ways, that's the complexity here, as you talked about it earlier, is this idea of having to plan many years ahead, not to think short term, but we tend to think short term in, in the most sense. And I can see why some of the things we think are going to happen that we're predicting will happen today won't. Uh, some of the more dire things might not happen. But it, when you were speaking to people who are invested in this heavily, uh, what was the reaction to that? Because clearly that's we tend to, when it becomes a political argument, we tend to say, well, there were these predictions about population growth and it didn't happen uh, and so forth. But that's not really the point, is it? I mean, it, what we, we know something is happening and there are going to be things that are, that are right and there's going to be things that are wrong. But it seems like the train is moving in one direction no matter what. Certainly. I saw some comments on Twitter about my piece and and one of them was like, well, I don't even believe in the climate models, so I didn't even read the article. And so I was like, you know, that's a fair point. And, and what would I say to that? And so I, I sort of dug in a little bit to see how accurate the climate models have been. And this is something called a hindcast, where basically scientists will look back at the warming experienced versus what the climate models previously were predicting of that warming to see how well they line up and if those two curves on the graph overlap entirely or if they're a little bit off. And I forget how many different climate models this study examined, but it, it looked at the out, sort of what was modeled and forecast according to the models over the past several decades versus what actually happened in the world. And they found that about there was about a 70% accuracy of the climate models, which is pretty good. And so you can you can sort of think of it in terms of, okay, well, let's say only seven out of 10 of these things are actually going to happen. Or let's say they're going to happen, but you know they'll only happen instead of with 100% accuracy, 70% accuracy. So I think it's safe to say that to be on the safe side, we should, we should trust them and plan to what they are telling us. Because by and large, everything that the climate scientists have told us is going to happen is happening. And if anything, it is happening sooner and more extreme than they told us. And so I, you know, to their credit, I actually think a lot of them were even conservative in their estimates and in their science to not be too alarmist. What else would I say? You know, you talked about political divisiveness and, mm -hmm. and on this, I, and I, I, I'd be curious to see what, what your thoughts are, but my impression is that there is still a significant disconnect between the political rhetoric on climate change versus what Canadians writ large actually think on this issue. Because the polling tells us that the vast majority of Canadians believe that climate change is caused by our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's over two thirds and actually only about 10% are what you would call sort of climate deniers. Um, and that percentage is shrinking every year. And so it's not hard to imagine that we should be having more political consensus on climate action than we actually see in the politicized debates that we have. Um, and I think that that loud minority is much louder and therefore seems much larger than it actually is. You know, even in the United States, the numbers are pretty similar. We tend to think of the United States as sort of climate laggards. But again, if you look at the polling, everyday Americans are not climate skeptics. They know that this is happening. They know that humans are the cause of it. Um, and so I, I, 
it's unclear to me how much we should tiptoe around that. Yeah, I always get the impression that part of it is who's going to bear the brunt, right? So if you have a province like Alberta that's heavily dependent on on fossil fuel production, not not you know sometimes that's exaggerated as well. But who's going to bear the brunt of this, right? Who's going to who who has to pay short term to make those long term sacrifices? Where the and that's often where the politics comes in. But it's hard to when you look at what's happened even this summer. It's hard to look at. Um, I, I mean, I, I, most people I speak to understand things are things are changing, right? It's just what sacrifices uh, do you make uh, in, it, to, to prevent it in the in the future and also then there's the whole global interconnectivity what's china doing and so on and so forth so i mean it's such a massive problem uh, and such a huge change that we're undergoing that i think people have a very hard time wrapping their heads around it i mean some of the stuff you see is uh, i mean even just this year between the ocean warming and so on and we don't it, you know we don't know what's what is what exactly the causes of each of these, these things are but it's hard not to look at it and think there's a, there's a picture being drawn and it's not a, not a pretty one uh, but you did again you found that there was some cause for optimism here there's a lot of places with an economic argument behind it i mean a country like china that didn't talk about climate change at all 30 years ago has jumped headfirst into making things uh, change. I mean, obviously, their emissions are still going up, so that's not good news. But there's a lot of recognition here that not only is preparedness needed, but there's also money to be made here. So, you know, there are many different arguments that that seem to work in terms of at least mitigating some of the what we're expecting to see between now and 2060. It's interesting. We're not quite at an inflection point right now, but it, I, I sort of describe it as this glass half full, glass half empty moment. Because we can see that the, that the global economy is making steps towards moving away from relying on the burning of fossil fuels to generate money towards using renewables and low carbon to drive the world. And the progress being made in that is unprecedented. I mean, you know, for the first time ever, um, investments in renewable energies are about to overtake investments in fossil fuel, right? The dropping price in renewables, it keeps shocking the man who runs the International Energy Agency. Like he always comes up with quotes sort of like, ah, we can't believe it again. This is right. wild. And you can tell that he's excited about it because the speed is is gaining so much momentum. And also at the same time, it needs to gain even more momentum. Like we need to double down on investments in renewables. I think we need to something like quadruple or quintuple our investments on that front. You know, and China, I, I find it hard to know without going there firsthand and, and getting a, a sense of it. But on paper, they are also, like all of us, making huge strides towards transitioning away from the burning of fossil fuels. They are still burning coal, and coal is an awful fossil fuel to burn because it burns so dirty. Um, but at the same time, their utility solar, the amount of solar that they have installed in gigawatts is more than all of the rest of the world combined. You hear something like that. Would we have imagined that even 10 years ago? I don't think so. And so you can foresee at the rate of this energy transition that we see right now, you can foresee that even in another five, 10 years, it will astound us even more and have even more momentum. Well, Anne, it was a fascinating article. I recommend people read it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Shabata Castleman, uh, her latest article for McLean's magazine is called Canada in the Year 2060. You can read her article in the September edition of McLean's on newsstands now. You can always visit mcleans.ca for daily updates as well.